This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, Season 9, Episode 21. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network, brought to you by HK. Today is Friday, January 19th, 2024, as of the recording of this episode. We're pleased to be with you. I'm your host, Riley Bowman, and joined today by Doc McLaughlin. Thanks for having me on. Glad to have you. Today's episode is our industry news and legislative updates episode. Uh, We try to bring this to you once a month. I just noticed in our preparation for this one, it's been like two months, I think at least, Mm. uh, since our last uh, episode like this. Maybe it's been even a little bit longer than that. So it's been been a minute. Our apologies for that. The good news is, is actually right now is a great time to resurrect this episode uh, because there's a lot of news to cover and share with you guys today. Uh, Some of it's because of some important legislative update type stuff. Some of it's some industry updates, but also we got a bunch of already new type product releases uh, for, that, that you know we're going to share with you as well. Uh, stuff that is uh, kind of heating up the week leading into Shot Show Week, which is actually next week as as of recording this right now. So and and, and this will be published during the week of Shot Show. This particular episode. So if you're listening to us on the pot on your podcast player, uh, it's it's already shot show. We're probably halfway through the the show at this point, but not too late. Stop by our booth, right? Well, yeah, right. If you happen to be listening to this and you're in Vegas and or attending uh, the shot show, we definitely want to see you there. Uh, booth number four one zero one zero four ten ten. That's how I remember it exactly four ten ten. Uh, and we'll be there all week long. So, and, and if you're also attending and you're going to industry day at the range, maybe you'll catch a few of us there, yep. uh, for, for industry day. Uh, oh, and one other thing for guardian nation members, if you happen to, even if you don't have access to shot show, but you're in the Vegas area on Tuesday of next week. So Tuesday during shot show, which I think is January 23rd, I want to say, mm-hmm. Yeah, let you, our producer will check on I'll that. I'll check on that. <laughs> yeah, Tuesday, twenty third. Yeah, and uh, I think it's at six or six thirty p.m. Uh, we have a get together for Guardian Nation members, and uh, uh, four thirty to seven. Oh, four thirty to seven. Oh, mm-hmm. that's earlier. Oh, um, yeah, it. That's that's Mountain Time. So it's, oh, it it's is, actually five thirty um, yeah. when we're there. You're right. Everything's plugged into that calendar on Pacific time. Uh, so it's adjusting. So 5.30 to 8 p.m., we'll have just a little meet and greet, get together. Uh, we've got a place picked out. The uh, Cornish Pastry Company. A Cornish Pasty. Pasty, you're right. You're yeah, right. yeah they, that's called a pasty. Yeah, not a which pastry. Is, uh, which is actually... Now, I kind of was familiar with it, but my wife is super big on... She's always watching these like food shows and stuff, and mm-hmm. she loves like foreign food show stuff. And uh, we watched an episode once that talked about this, and it's a, a well-known Cornish uh, style of a meal. And in fact, historically speaking, they'd make the, these pastries, and like half of it would be like like meat, uh, you know, like yeah. your like a savory part of your meal, and the other half would be like dessert, but all baked in one. Uh, so you eat kind of like you eat, start from one end, right? You get your get your dinner. And then you get your dessert too. I'm oh, into it. Yeah, I don't know if that's what they serve there per se, but uh, 
either way, that that is what a it's kind of like a hand pie, is. kind of like a hand pie. Yeah, exactly. It's like a yeah, like a like a fancy hot pocket. Yeah, <laughs> fancy <laughs> hot pocket. That's really selling it. The food will be good though. Come on out. <laughs> uh, again, for Guardian Nation members, so uh, hopefully we'll see some of you there. Today's episode, again, news and updates, uh, legislatively speaking, and some product releases. Today's episode is sponsored, brought to you by, first of all, CCW Safe. Uh, that is our choice for legal self-defense, uh, uh, legal coverage. So go to ccwsafe.com and also mountainmanmedical.com. And we'll, we'll interrupt uh, the, the episode midway and share some of those sponsor messages with you guys. Howdy, Deep South EDC watching us live on YouTube says it's been a while since he's caught us live. I'm glad to see you back, Deep South EDC, nice. who also follows up, says he's a CCW Safe member. Congrats. Awesome. That's, that's, that, those are our people, man. Uh, we are proud to be associated with CCW Safe. They also happen to be uh, our sponsor of the 2024 guardian conference now for the be the fourth year in a row let's get into our actual news stories here first up uh, i'm gonna go ahead and take the the lead on this one but i'm, I'm prepping you you're you've got the next one gotcha yeah so here we go first up nssf's firearm that's the national shooting sports foundation which mm-hmm. coincidentally is the organization that actually puts on shot show uh the it's it's an industry organization and one of the things the NSSF does pretty well is collecting data and statistics and things that are relevant to the firearm sales, you know, industry, mm. the national shooting sports industry. It's not just firearm sales, but uh, it's obviously a huge, huge portion of it. And so they released a survey with some uh, statistics and data uh, on firearm ownership and even sport shooting, which I thought was kind of interesting. And, and that, that's what caught my eye about this. And so a couple just key points to report on. So in this report, and this is for data from 2009 to 2022. During that period, 21 or excuse me, 24.1% growth of adult participation in sport shooting. So it's a 13-year period, and during that period, adult participation in sport shooting grew 24.1%. That's that's really awesome. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Um, I don't know how that compares to overall, say, like population growth. To you know, to know if like that's like keeping pace with, or outpacing, or behind in pacing with you know, because I, I assume that's measuring. Well, what it says is sport shooting participation grew from 34 million adult participants to over 63.5 million adult mm. participants during that period. So that's, that's, that's why the growth, right? Um, and so that's, that's pretty impressive. Uh, that's also interesting because this is over COVID when they cut down on the restrictions to allow people to go into ranges and things too. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and, but, what's interesting about that is that we saw a significant growth during COVID and there was a lot going on, a lot of turmoil. Uh, people I think were thinking a little bit more about uh, personal preparedness and, and self reliance. Um, uh, that's where we saw a whole bunch of people entering the market, buying guns for the first time. And I think of the, the COVID, but also everything going on in the country and worldwide turmoil wise, as far as there was an uptick in violence, there was, protests in the streets mm-hmm. 
yeah, all kinds of things going on. And so pretty interesting that, that it still managed to, and it was driven by a lot of societal factors, but it still managed to grow in a substantial um, amount mm-hmm. during, even when things were shut down. So yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. Some other interesting numbers, uh, the most popular types of recreational sports shooting for adults in the year 2022 were target shooting with a handgun that represented just shy of 17% target shooting with a rifle, which was just a little bit less than that at uh, 15.6%. And then just target shooting in an outdoor range in general, it said was 13.3%. Uh, the report also indicated that recreational target shooting at indoor ranges recovered to pre-COVID-19 levels. After So this is re- referencing 2022. By, by, by the time we got into the year 2022, we had seen indoor range use recover to pre-COVID-19 levels. Uh, so in 2022, 17% of all adults, this is pretty remarkable, participating in the shooting sports were newcomers. So 17% were brand new in 2022. That's a 42% growth since 2020, which that is, I mean, that's what we were just kind of touching on. That is not insignificant to see 17% growth in just two years. Or excuse me, 42% growth. Right. Right. The 17% was was the number of how many were new newcomers. But it's saying that's a 42% growth. That's crazy growth. Yep. Yep. So there you go. That's kind of the gist of uh, kind of the key highlights of that report. Other thoughts, Brian? Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> this is something that I think is kind of interesting is that people are getting into the fun of shooting, you know, like uh, like you said, that we don't have so much of the turmoil going on in the country right now. So people are just enjoying the sport of shooting as opposed to, um, you know, they're training heavy for something crazy about to happen. So I think that's kind of a, an interesting shift. Right. And I'd imagine that sports shooting also, uh, did it say uh, it had to do with um, hunting at all? It did not mention hunting in the yeah. report, or at least in what I reviewed. I'd be curious to see what those numbers yeah. were. I didn't too. go through the entire thing. I kind of hit you know some of the, the key points, yeah. which is what we just touched on there. So, yeah, very, very good stuff. Um, all right. The next story. Uvalde. Uvalde re- prepares for a DOJ report on school shooting response. Uh, the, you dropped this story. You brought this to my attention. And, in fact, this was this report was officially – so our news story says that they were preparing for that release of that report. But, actually, it did drop, I think, on Thursday morning. It did. I didn't get a chance. I was just watching the video by Garland. I even have it up here right now um, where they're talking about everything that happened. And, essentially – um, if you don't remember what this story is, let me uh, let me give you a little breakdown. So Uvalde, this is where uh, Uvalde, Texas, a um, shooter entered a school there and wound up uh, left 19 students dead and two adults. Um, and then it's generally considered to be one of the greatest fiascos um, in recent times regarding uh, active shooters, and especially in a school. And it yeah. seems like this is the worst one so far since like Columbine. Um, with the level of 
things that kind of went wrong here. And so what happened is it took right. more than an hour for officers to confront the gunman before he was fatally wounded. Um, they staged outside for far too long. Nobody pushed in. Nobody confronted the shooter. There were shots being fired and people still didn't aggress on him. Um, so the proper policies that are kind of more commonplace now in days, you know, for right. apartments were not observed very well. And there was a lot of mismanagement, a lot of miscommunication too, which is one of the biggest problems that you're going to have in a situation like this is communication breakdown. Um, establishing command and control is obviously like one of the most difficult things. And if you don't have a good power structure, especially when you have multiple services and uh, agencies coming together, trying to establish who's in charge of that situation has to be done ahead of time. Um, and you have to talk this out with, you know, your fire captains and um, the fire chief and police chief and everybody knows when they set up who's in charge and how they're going to run all that. And that wasn't done very well at all. No, no. You know, the, the current, you know, best practice, if you will, for active shooter response, especially on the LE side is you're the first guy that arrives on scene. Like you're the first officer on scene. Uh, if you happen to arrive and there, and you got a partner with you or you happen to arrive about the same time or close to the same time as another, like whoever you got, you're going in. And if you're there alone, like you're st in, in many departments, you're encouraged to, you go in, you grab what you, you know, if you have the opportunity to throw on some body armor, grab a patrol rifle, fine. But otherwise you're not delaying response because the thing that saves lives, and this is true, not just of law enforcement response. This is true, period. What makes the difference in saving lives in active shooter incidents is the speed and efficiency of the response to trying to end or stop or slow down that threat, right. period, right? Which is why, I mean, shootings like the um, Elisha Dickin shooting in, 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 the, in, in the mall in Indiana, right? I mean, he just was right there and willing to do what it what it took and because of the speed and urgency of his response I mean, it didn't even require a law enforcement response and it didn't amount to hardly anything because he was right there and put a stop to it immediately that is the difference maker and what happened in uvalde was not that right you had cops that arrived on scene that stood by you had actually orders that came down from their superiors that 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 told them to not go in. There were all kinds of problems. Um, it was a huge step back in the th lessons that we've learned since Columbine. Like it, it, there was no excuse for what happened in Uvalde. And that's what this report confirms. I mean, it's no surprise to anybody. We all know that that, <laughs> like if you followed this at all, which is probably most of you, at least, you know, at least somewhat familiar with what happened in, 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 at, in the Uvalde shooting. You already know a lot of this, um, but the official Department of Justice report uh, is, is now released and confirms pretty much everything we know. I encourage you to check that out. Link in the show notes, of course, uh, so you can uh, uh, look into that report for yourself if you have a, a you know curiosity of, of reading it. Right. Uh, I think there's some really good takeaways from there. Um, there was one other thought I had there, but uh, I'll throw it back to you. Right. Well, I think one of the most important things, a lot, a lot of people don't understand, like, what is the policies, the procedures that they have in place here? And it used to be, you got a barricaded shooter, you got a bad guy in this building. It's very dangerous to go in and find that guy. Mm -hmm. um, and so what they used to do is stage on the outside, wait until you yep. get a bunch of guys with a lot of guns and go in and force. And now they're not teaching that. Now there's first officer on scene is being told that he grabs his patrol rifle, hopefully yep. medical kit. 
um, because there's going to be people down and on the ground. And after you take care of the bad guy, now comes the job of fixing all of the injuries that he, you know, his goal is to stack bodies. He's trying to get as many body count as possible. So after we take care of that threat, now our job is to reduce that impact as far as possible. So having a good trauma kit on you, especially with chest seals, right? So a lot of people are putting tons of tourniquets in their trauma kits for active shooters. You need tourniquets, but you're far more likely to see wounds on the trunk and the head. That's where they're going to be shooting because they're going to be trying to create the most damage. Uh, If they happen to hit an arm or a leg, that's mostly accidental. So having tourniquets to take care of that bleeding in that particular situation is important, but you're probably going to be dealing with chest trauma a lot more penetrating chest trauma. Only thing that we can really do for that is chest seals. So average, you want to average about three to four wounds per active shooter casualty. Um, So you need to have two chest seals per bullet hole. So you're sitting about six to eight chest seals per casualty. So you want to make sure you're stocking up on chest seals a lot more than you were tourniquets for that particular situation. Yeah. Yeah. Good thoughts. Uh, of course, Brian, our resident expert. That's my bread and butter. <laughs> um, interestingly enough, this, this relates to a story we have coming up a little bit later under some of the legislative stuff. Uh, we have some bills that they are you know, that they're talking about uh, trying to pass here in Colorado. I don't think anything has been officially introduced yet in our, in our state legislature. But one of those is to remove the option that school districts have had here in Colorado for over 20 years now uh, to actually have staff, including teachers uh, that have kind of a double duty. They're, they're actually, they have to be essentially additionally hired on or recognized as a school safety officer and uh, of course get training in accordance with the district's policies i believe that is set according to you know from district to district we've had that option in colorado for over 20 years where school districts if they choose to can have armed teachers in schools which again going back to the importance of the the expediency of response to an active shooter that is super important and they want to get rid of that that option here in Colorado. So anyway, apparently again, we have struggled to learn from past mistakes and allow politics get in the way of good decision-making, but yeah, I'm not sure about that. Uh, what, what my opinion is on that, but those, uh, those teachers better be well-trained. That's uh, that's my only thought. Oh, of course. I mean, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Teachers should be well. Uh, and, and that is like the districts that do this typically, uh, put teachers in, in fact, there's a, a program called faster, hmm. um, which uh, my buddy Quinn Cunningham and a few others here in Colorado uh, run the Faster Colorado program. And that's specifically aimed at training teachers that are part of uh, that program. Wow. As, as far as, you know, act, you know, that take the role of being um, armed uh, teachers on campus. That'd be cool to talk uh, to. That has some so, cool questions about but that. But again, they will, you know, looking at like the, the only exception to having a gun on, on a school campus would be if you are actually sworn law enforcement. Right. Okay. So that, so you would be an officer of the law at that point, but also well, a teacher. No, no. Well, I don't, like I don't certify. No, what they're, what that's not, I don't think that's what they're saying at all. They're just saying cops are the ones that'll be able to carry guns on campus. Oh. So get rid of the exception where there is the option for school district to train and, also hire teachers or allow teachers to be trained school security staff. Mm. And I don't, I think that's a major step back. Yeah. So anyway, um, that's, you know, here nor there, as far as what we're talking about right 
Well, kind of related, like I said. But let's talk about this next one here. Wayne LaPierre resigns as NRA leader days before start of his civil trial. Boy, that was super convenient. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, health and health <laughs> concerns. Uh, it, well, yeah, I imagine the dude's feeling some pressure. Well, I mean, he's 74. That's kind of the thing about politicians, right? They're all incredibly old. So anytime (laughs) they start getting any kind of flack, they're like health reasons. Sorry, I'm 74. I'm just unhealthy. I'm like, okay. People have been calling for the step down of Wayne LaPierre as the, uh, what is he? The executive um, vice president of the organization. Really, he is the de facto, you know, leader of the NRA. Right. Um, You know, the NRA has a president, which is more of a figurehead. Yeah. More of a figurehead. There you go. Um, But uh, Wayne LaPierre is really the guy that's been, you know, driving the bus for a lot of years now, multiple decades. Um, And again, has, there's been calls for years for his stepping down uh, among a number of, you know, claims of, 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 uh, you know, abuses and financial mismanagement. And, you know, stories came out of, you know, the kind of money that the organization was spending on, on him himself and for suits for him. And I mean, ridiculous sums of money, like stuff that's just, I mean, yes, I was not a fan. So that just to make that clear. And I think probably a lot of you listening or watching uh, probably in that same boat. Uh, so the story here, Wayne LaPierre stepped down. Uh, he's gone as far as uh, head of the, I actually think that goes into effect the end of this month officially, uh, which is coming right up. We're, we're, you know, getting to, uh, we're at two thirds of the way through the month of January. Um, no idea who will be next. Okay. Uh, you know, qualified candidates, please apply. Uh, I actually don't know exactly how all that works, but here's actually something else I wanted to touch on. I think that's also noteworthy that we, sh- that we should address. And the fact is, is that while Wayne LaPierre may be the bus driver. Um, there is a whole bus full of like 76 board members. Okay. So the board of directors of the NRA is made up, I think of 76 individuals that are, these are elected positions by members of the NRA that put those people into position. And ultimately there's a lot of, a lot, probably the majority I would even see so far so far to say of those board members also hold a lot of responsibility in recent woes of the NRA. And it's really easy to point to an individual as a scapegoat and say, that's the guy. And you even see right now, there's in the last few days, there's been a number of NRA board of directors members have been posting and coming out, you know, it's sort of almost like trying to take credit and or sort of say, Hey, look, like, thank goodness that guy's gone. You know, like we're, we're here for, you know, the, the, the sanctity and the salvation of this organization. Uh, and boy, we're just glad that Wayne LaPierre is gone. Thank goodness. And then we're going to make this right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, bro, you've been a board of director uh, member for two decades yourself. And what have you done in that time? Right? Like ultimately as the board of directors wanted to make changes, you could do it. Okay. You get enough of them, especially you get enough of them on the same page. The fact of the matter is most of them have marched in lockstep with Wayne LaPierre for a lot of that time as well. Yeah. There's been a few kind of wild cards that have gotten in there that have gotten elected. Most of them didn't last very long guys and, and gals that went in to try to, you know, influence and improve the state of the organization. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, you know, too little, too late. 
and uh, kind of the getting old, in the way of profits. Yeah, and the, and the old guard, you know, just wouldn't relinquish control. Yeah, I know. So, when I got into the firearm industry, like four years ago, like one of the things I, I had always been in, in the NRA, I had been a member. You know, me and my dad you know, forever. Um, and I'd always viewed the NRA, you know, with very positive light. And then I got into the firearms industry and did, you know, my own research into some of these types of claims. And I was very disgruntled to discover that here's somebody who's supposed to be on my side, who is basically just playing the exact same game as the other side. Yeah. Like I, I felt a lot like while the NRA does some very good things for our community it also the way that it, it's approaches it, you can tell that it's much more built for profit than it is to really support us in the Second Amendment industry. That's the feeling that I got. It was built for profit. They're not really passionate about like gun control. It's just their vehicle for gaining wealth. Is the vibe that yeah. I got. And then when I when I learned about all of this kind of corruption kind of stuff. I'm very disgruntled at that, that they're playing the exact same game as our enemy is, you know, on the other side. Um, and it was disheartening to hear, you know, that um, this uh, organization that I put so much trust into was actually not doing as good for me as I had anticipated. Right. Right. Yeah. I, if, for me, I, I, yes, profits. Um, I, I see it also as just more of a power thing. Oh yeah. You oh, know. the political power right. that they have is enormous. Yeah. Yeah. So we need the NRA with just the amount yes. of reach and everything that they've got. We just need it run better. But the problem is, is like, you got to root out that corruption yeah. and getting way rid of, of Wayne is one step. But like you said, who's the next Bubba that's about to pop in here? Yeah. You know, you have the same issue in war torn areas where you've got warlords, you kill one warlord, Another you've got a yep. thousand warlords waiting to step into yep. that same position. One hundred percent, and you're just right back where you started. Exactly, so. and that is that is that's the point here. And you got you know people already vying to try to take that position. And again, uh, what are their ulterior, ulterior motives, right? Uh, and yeah, we need the right people in charge. I do believe that the NRA can still be a uh, a boon, meaning you know. a a benefit, a good thing for the two-way community, for our Second Amendment rights. Um, there is tremendous power in the fact that an organization represents millions of American gun owners, uh, more so than any other uh, uh, any of the other organizations by a wide margin. Uh, it just needs to be run effectively and put that the true power, meaning the power of us, the people, the the gun-toting Americans, the members, like we 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 are where the power lies. But you see this so often in large organizations. This is the same thing in government. Like we, the people, as Americans, should be where the power resides. But what you see all the time in modern politics today is a power struggle where people in those elected leadership positions they're trying to gain the power for themselves and to keep themselves in power. And so there's that power struggle between politicians and we, the people, and the same sort of thing has existed in the NRA for a number of years now where people at the top have the power, but, and, and fail to recognize and truly uh, support where the power lies, which is in all of us. Mm -hmm. So, the best there that you know as far as outcomes are concerned there's still this this uh 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 you know trial thing that's gonna be taking place in new york um and so see how that all shakes out too 
Uh, we need to keep moving along here. Still have a lot to cover, but first, we'll take a short break. CCW Safe, again, is our choice for self-defense legal coverage. If you're involved in some kind of self-defense situation, use of force, draw a gun, even if a shot's not fired, or in the worst case scenario, you do have to fire shots to save lives and defend you know, people and families, uh, et cetera, then you're going to want somebody like CCW Safe backing you up, a company that truly does back up their members and has a proven history in doing so. And by the way, has phenomenal coverage benefits anyway. Check out ccwsafe.com today and get signed up, or at least consider getting signed up for CCW Safe coverage. The other great thing I I really appreciate about CCW Safe, I mean, if you can, the ultimate plan is where it's at. That's what you want. You get max coverage of everything. Uh, But if if budget's an issue, uh, maybe you've had ultimate plan for a few years, but you still want good coverage, especially it's going to cover you on the really big, heavy-hitting stuff. Uh, meaning if something has to go to trial in particular, like you definitely don't want to be on the hook for that bill. Uh, CCW safe coverage is also available at lower tier plan, uh, lower tier points as far as plans go. So you can look into that as well uh, and choose the best coverage for you and both in terms of the coverage you desire, but also the budget that that works for you and your household as well. Again, ccwsafe.com and our Guardian Nation members have a special discount for 20% off, which is not insignificant. And they can find that in their members dashboard area. We have a number of new product announcements to share with you as well. First one here, as reported on amoland.com, this is from a somewhat newcomer to the market, probably three-ish years that I can recall seeing them really be a thing, and that is TISAS, T-I-S-A-S, if you're not familiar, uh, which is TISAS USA is the, is the company. These are actually guns that are that are made overseas. Um, they're imported through a company called SDS Imports. Um, TISAS USA has been putting out some pretty respectable 1911 pistols the last couple of years. People that I trust and know uh, that have experience with 1911-style pistols, I've been getting some pretty good feedback with regards to these TSS pistols, which which is saying something. Because you're talking about guns that have a very affordable price point. I mean, you could pick up some of their entry-level 1911s for like sub $500, which is remarkable. And, and, And by all accounts, run and run reliably, and that's really saying something for uh, you know in the, in today's world of 1911s, where you can spend two thousand, even two thousand plus dollars on a 1911 that isn't reliable. Um, so <laughs> they have a 1911 Duty 45 ACP um, five inch barrel. It looks like for four thirty five. Yeah, so, yeah, that's a good price. Like that's that's crazy, right? So the big news here is they're actually coming out with. Double stack 1911s. That's that's the proper term, by the way. Uh, many people were colloquially referred to double stack 1911s as 2011s, which, by the way, 2011 is a trademarked name owned by Staccato. Mm. Um, so, I mean, you're welcome to refer to things, I guess, as 2011s you want, but these are technically known as a 1911 double stack. You'll see they call this, the, for instance, these, these models like the 1911 Duty B9R DS, that DS stands for double stack. Uh, they have a carry model. It's a four and a quarter inch barrel. 
And the duty model, uh, which you were talking about, a duty model, double stack duty 1911 model, five inch barrel. And these are coming in or in the MSRP on the duty model and the carry model, both $799.99. So you're talking essentially a staccato competitor, a Springfield Armory prodigy competitor, which staccato, you're basically looking at $2,000 minimum, usually more like $22 to $2,500 for you know, say like a staccato P or something that, you know, like a, I think you buy a staccato P for about $24, $2,500. Uh, that's if you can find one that's available, that's in stock. You can buy a Springfield uh, Prodigy for about $12.99, $12.50, somewhere in that ballpark. Mm. Technically, those retail, I think, for $14.99 or $15.99. These double stack 1911 Tisa's pistols, $7.99 MSRP. That is absolute madness, especially if these run. So far, the the history with these uh, with the single stack TSS 1911 pistols has been pretty good. So it'd be pretty interesting to see a staccato and a prodigy competitor that is at a substantially lower price point, and if it actually is reliable and works well, that could be a big difference maker in this market. Now, do you notice a difference in the nine millimeter versus the forty-five nineteen elevens? Because I've I've got a forty-five caliber, you know, nineteen eleven, but I've always really wanted a double stack nine millimeter. I just thought that'd be so cool. Yeah, so you know, uh, a nine millimeter nineteen eleven shoots like a dream. Mm. You know, they shoot so soft. I mean, you're talking a heavy gun uh, that uh, just with the nine millimeter just cycles so just. So well, the the challenge of 1911 9 millimeters is a lot of times that they, they're just not known for being particularly reliable. Hmm. Yeah, uh, and a lot of that is a challenge with the magazines, not so much the gun, uh, but well, a little bit of the gun. But the fact that you're taking something that's designed for a 45 caliber cartridge, uh, so the 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 grip, the internal dimensions of the magwell, the magazine itself are optimized for 45 ACP dimensions. Mm-hmm. So if you look at a nine millimeter 1911 magazine, you'll see how it's basically, you know, it, it's trying to be a 45 ACP mag, but they add kind of this extra little wall in the back to shorten it up to, to make it work with nine millimeter uh, cartridge case. Well, there's some, some downsides to that, some geometry that doesn't work as it's not as optimized for that nine millimeter cartridge. Um, that's where you have companies that, you know, with these double stack guns, like a Staccato a 2011, for instance, uh, I would still say that the big challenge, even with those is the magazines are still probably the top issue with reliability in a lot of those guns. Not always the only you know issue, but a lot of the big challenges is with magazines. You'll hear a lot of uh, 2011 Staccato type pistol shooters talk a lot about it because there's a number of different magazine options out there. Uh, mag- magazines from Staccato, magazines from Atlas, magazines from, uh, uh, well, St- uh, or Springfield has their own magazine now uh, with regards to Prodigy. Uh, I know I'm missing another big uh, popular name brand one, uh, um, just drawing a, 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 a blank right now, but, but you hear guys talk about, well, I tried this magazine, I tried that magazine, or this worked really well in this gun, but you know, that worked really well in this, you know, there's always people chasing around these things. And then a lot of times these double stack, uh, nine millimeter, 1911 style ma- magazines require a fair bit of tuning. Meaning you gotta, you know, do a little bit of tweaking and things to feed lips and stuff to get them to actually run reliably. So mm. it's, always been a little bit of a challenge and it'll be curious i'll be curious to see 
how TSUS is handling that. I'm not sure what they're using for magazines, um, but if there's going to be a challenge with these guns, that the magazine would be one of the first places that I would start looking. Now, with that problem with the magazines, would that um, reduce the chance that you might use this in competition? Is it, is it that big of a deal? Oh, it could be, absolutely. But, you know, on the duty or uh, uh, self-defense side of things, that could it's absolutely a bigger deal. be a bigger deal. You know, like, like, I definitely don't want malfunctioning guns in competition, but, you know, they're coming out with, these are, these are branded as the 1911 duty DS or double stack gun and the 1911 carry DS gun. They're not necessarily marketing these new pistols from TSUS to competition, although you certainly could use these in competition. But uh, these are these are being branded as duty and carry guns. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they better be reliable, you know, right? Oh, one other note. I didn't mention this. These are optic ready, which I mean, that's another really uh, impressive thing to see, especially at the price point that these are at. I forgot to, to mention that earlier. Um, says that they come with two 17 round double stack magazines. Um, the optic cut itself is, then some are going to view this as being a, a potential problem um, because they might want to run something a little bit bigger, but these are coming optic ready for the 507K, the Holosun 507K, or the Shield RMSC footprint. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are smaller optics. Uh, so that might be a little bit of a downside there, but still really cool. Um, and, you know, more 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 competition in the market, which, you know, the benefit there is that competition is a good thing as far as encouraging everybody to try harder, do better, be more innovative, drop c- prices. I mean, in the end, usually it should be us, the, the consumer that wins. Yeah, uh, that's why what I dig about this is it looks like it has a lot of very, you know, premium type features. You know, you got your extended magazine release and, you know, um, being able to have it optics ready and everything. But it's still cooking along at uh, 800 bucks, which is reasonable. Oh, that's a fantastic price yeah. for a gun like this. So, all righty. So, more folks checking in on the on the live feed here. Pat Walsh, good to see you. Thank you for checking in. Eddie as well. I'm watching on Facebook today. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Uh, good to see you. Um, all right. What else we got here? Let's now get to – I'm going to throw this your way. I want to get your your thoughts on this. You've had a day or two to think on this. We watched a little video, promo video of sorts, showing this new product. That is the – and this, by the way, this was reported on thefirearmblog.com. Hi-Viz Shooting Systems debuts a new, they call it, the, the product name here is the Fast.H3. And apparently, you know, the, this is concept of a single dot, you know, iron sight sort of setup. Interesting concept. You looked at it a little bit. We watched a video together, kind of showed it in use. Tell us about this <clears throat> okay. Hi-Viz Fast.H3. Right. All right. So essentially what this is, is it seems like it's their their attempt at trying to create a bit of a red dot type system that's more iron sight based. Um, so there's no batteries. There's no electronic components. It just picks up the ambient light um, to illuminate the reticle. Um, and it's very low profile so that it'll still fit in all of your holsters and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's a very cool product. Um, looking at it, um, it seems like it might be a, a good variation if you're not looking to, to run an optic. Optics can be pretty expensive, although this is also not one of the not cheapest cheap. sites out there on the market. Um, but the concept is really cool. Um, getting a chance to look at it, um, it looked like it might be a little bit 
difficult. You know, when you're doing fast combat shooting, sometimes you don't have the most perfect sight picture. And for this, um, it seemed like you kind of had to have everything lined up exactly right before you could really use that front sight. So I would love to play around with it and try and see what happens when I was running it. But it seemed to me like it might be more detrimental in, in maybe a faster combat shooting type of environment. And then the other issue that you might have is because it picks up the ambient light, low light settings, um, you're less likely to be able to see your reticle. Um, whereas in, of course, a true red dot, um, you know, it's going to mm-hmm. be illuminated via electricity. So you're going to see that no matter what. Yeah. Um, so the concept is very cool. I, I would want to play around with it before I had my final says on it, though. 100%. I mean, we're making some assumptions here, uh, but I'm also speaking from a place of, of experience in that I've seen a lot, you know, I've been doing this long enough now. I've seen a lot of different things in different products. This product most closely resembles the product that uh, Meprolite has made for a number of years. I can't remember the exact name on that one, but it's a similar concept where, where it's, you basically replace the rear sight with it. And it, it's sort of like, it's got like a tube that basically you have to align with the target. And when it's aligned in that tube, you'll see this little green dot sort of center in there and up here. And if it's not aligned, you're not going to see it. This, this is sort of a, a variation of that Meprolite type product Instead, in this case of getting like a little dot centered in that tube, in this case, the whole tube appears to illuminate when it's properly aligned on target. Mm-hmm. The other interesting thing, though, about this one that is a little bit this, that does distinguish it a little bit from the the Meprolite offering is it has a also a front sight which has a uh, red fiber optic and it's a large fiber optic red dot, if you will, this front sight. And the idea there basically is, is those two things should align the, the, this rear green tube thing. Um, again, you're not, you're not able to see through it. It's just that tube exists so that, you know, the light that's being filtered in through the fiber optics system, or there's also light in low light conditions that's provided by the, by tritium. Mm. So this, this new product, this fast H3 product from hive also is supposed to be visible in low light conditions, but I suppose that's also true of the Meprolite product. And in my experience, it's it kind of works, but it's not as effective as some other options in low light, including just regular old tritium night sights. So I'm curious to see how just how well this Hivis product actually works in low light conditions. And also testing that with uh, artificial light. Um, and seeing, you know, for instance, like maybe you can pick this up okay in low light when you don't have a flashlight or a weapon mount light also illuminating the target. But what happens when all of a sudden now you illuminate the target? Or, you know, so these are all considerations that are important when we're talking about sights. Sights are important. We need sights to get the conf- the visual confirmation we need to see whether the gun is aligned with the target or not. Right. That's what that's all about. And vision is key. If you can't see the sights, you can't get the visual confirmation. You can't know, meaning have knowledge, which is powerful. Okay. You can't know that your gun is perfectly, you know, aligned with the place. It doesn't have to be perfect. Don't get me wrong. It's just that you want to know where your gun's pointed. And the way we typically garner that information is visually by and large. Okay. So um, curious to see how this works. 
what I perceive, like you mentioned, is that you kind of have to have it more or less perfectly aligned or you're not going to get that green light. What's unique in this product as compared to the Meprolite one is that front sight. The idea there is, is that when you're not perfectly aligned, then you'll that front sight will sort of, and that big red fiber optic will sort of appear around the rear sight. Mm-hmm. And that'll kind of give you that feedback of, oh, I'm misaligned here and sort of help steer you back to alignment. And then that green light that you that should appear in the tube portion of the rear sight will then let you know, okay, you're good. My concerns with this product are a couple. Number one, uh, the ability to see and register this site information at a high rate of speed. Mm-hmm. In other words, call shots at speed, which is something that's really important to me. It's something I teach in my pistol intelligence course. I introduce to people sometimes for the first time the ability to see site information, including while the gun's being fired, while it's recoiling, all of that, so that you can be registering site confirmation level information while the gun's in motion. That's something that's like that's relevant to you know combat shooting as you describe it or competitive shooting, which is you know the world I live in both worlds, but you need to be able to process that information at a high rate of speed. And I'm not sure if the way the site is designed, if it's going to work as well as maybe more conventional um, options. Number two concern again I mentioned was the the low light and how well how effective it is there. Number three big concern here is cost. Uh, this thing al- costs almost as much as what you can buy some of the low you know lower end but still pretty decent red dots like a Hollow Seven Hollow Sun 407K is not that far off from the price point of these sites. Yeah, these are running MSRP is one seven five. Yeah, one hundred seventy five dollars for a set of these sites. And then the uh, uh, final thing is precision. How precise can I be with this? So uh, not every shot that's required is one that requires you know a gross aiming confirmation. Some require you to be well aimed. You know if you got a farther shot or maybe maybe you got a hostage type situation you know and you got or you just have a tight shot these are assumptions uh i think but mainly these are just questions i'm raising things that i will be looking for if i had the opportunity to evaluate these i will be evaluating these sites based on some of those factors now what about durability now my my experience with uh fiber optic sites are uh, pretty fragile well okay I have tens of thousands of rounds through guns with fiber optic sights on them. And if they're installed correctly, uh, fiber optic sights can last a long time. Um, but they can fail. That's true. Now, in this case, the, the fiber optic part of the technology for that rear sight is all internal to that to that sight. You, you can see it's got an enclosure. Mm-hmm. And part of the top of it is clear. Um, so it's apparent to me also looking at this high-vis product that, the, that some of it Maybe metal, but some of it is also um, polymer of some kind or plastic of some kind. So I also wondered about durability. They, they kept touting this as, well, it doesn't require power. It doesn't require batteries. And that's a big plus over red dots. Well, that's that's fair a fair point to make. But I'm seeing some plastic being used as well on this site. And how durable is that going to be? How is it going to hold up? Um, I think probably the rear sight fiber optics are probably protected reasonably well enough that they're, that's going to be not going to be so much an issue. Usually what happens to fiber optics though, Brian, is that they break and fall out. Um, that could be a problem for the front sight portion mm-hmm. of this particular site. So, but it looks like that front sight is also kind of enclosed in that metal. So it's not so exposed. 
Well, yeah, I mean, it, but not fully enclosed. Yeah. So, yeah. well, it can't yeah. be, or else it won't pick up that ambient exactly. light. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. All righty. Springfield Armor reveals innovative features in the new TRP pistol series. Uh, so, th- they just made a big, big to do about this. Apparently, they're updating the TRP pistol, which, by the way, the TRP has been an available model from Springfield Armory for probably close to 20 years, uh, to, my, to the best of my recollection. Which, by the way, it's a pretty good pistol. Like the TRP is known to be uh, sort of a mid-tier 1911 pistol, um, usually appropriately priced f- as far as that goes as well. Uh, the TRP line is kind of a semi-custom uh, pistol. So a lot of the lower end 1911s that say Springfield makes are more what you would call like a production gun where, you know, most of the work is, it's basically all done on machines. You know, parts are cut, might be a little bit of minor fitting, but really not a whole, you know, the idea there is to make the parts so consistent that you just slap it together, like a, basically like a Glock or a SIG or a Smith and Wesson. And, uh, and, and away you go. Uh, Semi-custom means that there is some fitting that's involved, some custom fitting, and then there's other parts that are more drop-in, right? Uh, so that's not enough. That's not a crazy out there, you know, off-the-wall thing. That's been a thing from a number of manufacturers for a number of years now, including Staccato. Staccato has some things that are fit, but a lot of parts are simply drop-in, right? Uh, so the TRP is being updated. Um, it's you know number of these six new models of TRP pistols, really just a bunch of different configurations, different grips, colors, um, maybe some. I don't know if there was if they're all di- the same sights or if there's slightly different options in the sights. I didn't get that deep into it, um, but uh, the one thing that's kind of disappoint. Oh, and they have the, this new carry contour model, so it's really like three different grip and color schemes and then they've got that basically available in both of us a standard 1911 as well as a carry contour model which just means mainly that the the grip itself has been bobtailed a little bit to be a little bit more carry uh, friendly the, the trp by the way stands for tactical response pistol if i recall correctly so this is a very similar category as the tisa then uh, your duty carry uh, gun kind of thing. I, I don't know if I'd say it's the same category. I don't, and I don't know. A t- it, I don't know enough about how the Tisas are exactly made to to be able to um, compare if this is like you know apples apples or more apples oranges. Um, I suspect it's a little bit more apples to oranges, but uh, I mean, because anybody can say whatever they want as far as this is duty great. You know what I mean? Now, but the TRP is sort of modeled after the pistol that the FBI um, HRT team um, adopted a number of years ago, which was the Springfield Armory Professional Series pistol, which is a pure custom gun from Springfield Armory's custom shop. Uh, The the TRP they came out with, it's not the TRP that the HRT guys use, uh, but it's it's a friendlier price point and modeled after or similarly to the specifications is like what what the, the HRT guys are using in the form of the professional series guns so just to make that clear so a couple couple things though to note here the msrp is is basically two thousand dollars 1999 uh that's not inexpensive and uh there's i i don't know exactly which parts but i've seen reports that there's still quite a number of parts in these tr new trp pistols that are mim or uh, metal injection molded 
parts. Oh yeah, I read I, that. I didn't know what that meant. I know specifically that like the two things I know I heard was that the hammer and the trigger itself are MIM parts. Trigger I don't care so much about, but hammer being MIM is not. I'm not a fan. You, you um, prefer, I prefer that, that forged a, a, mach, a machine. machine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Should be forged and a properly machined and heat treated part. MIM is not that. So. Now, what's your reasoning behind that? It's just uh, a more robust... Higher um, quality part, man. Okay, yeah. Yeah. MIM doesn't have the greatest track record. Uh, I think when it's done well, it's it, it can be every bit as... I hate to say as good. I mean, good enough, I would, be, I would probably be the more accurate way to describe a MIM part that's a good MIM part. Um, can be good enough for the requirements, um, but... Usually when you see guys that say, hey, my hammer broke on my 1911, usually what you see, it's not machine hammers that are breaking, it's MIM parts mm-hmm. that are breaking. And so that's that's one of the concerns there. So I think for the money, it's um, probably not a bad gun, but I think there's probably some other good values out there to be had, like the uh, Dan Wesson PM9s um, are a little bit cheaper and probably quite a bit better in terms of the quality of some of the parts being used in them. And so, so that just take that into consideration. Um, The other thing that's a big, I think there's actually two huge things I think they missed here. Number one, these are only chambered in 45 ACP. And I think you see a lot of guys that'll have interest in, you know, being able to buy one of these in nine millimeter. The second thing is no optics ready version and I think that's a huge missed opportunity in today's world where almost everything now is starting to come, at least with the option for optics and these simply, I mean, if you could, but you'd have to send your slide off to be milled. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. So Tisa or this one, which, what, what, what would you, if you had to make a decision, someone put a 1911 to your head and they're like, Hey, you got to yeah. choose one. What, what, where are you at? Well, since I don't have enough time on the Tisa's guns, Personally, it's that's hard for me to make you know to answer that. Sure, um, I will say that I have a 2003. That's kind of old now. This you know, relatively speaking, but a 2003 built Springfield Armory 1911. Um, that is also essentially a semi-custom. It's, it's as I was reading the specifications on these TRPs, I'm like, yeah, that pretty much describes how my 1911 was built by them. In, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, and it's a fantastic gun. Uh, it's uh, there's nothing on it that's MIM, by the way. But so that's that's kind of one again. That's one thing that's a little bit of a knock um, on on this new TRP. But but it's a great 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 gun. So that, that again was more of semi custom. So where a lot of things are uh, more drop in, but then there was aspects of that gun that were still hand fitted by guns by trained quality you know gunsmiths at springfield armory shop there so um but here's the thing that these t-sus guns are such a good value in terms of price point and options uh and a lot of options that people want that's where they make a strong case so i think it's hard to say but i would probably i mean i could buy two or three of these t-sus guns yes for every one of these that's where i'm at you know i'm much more of a it's it's not the brush, it's the artist, you know, mm-hmm. kind of a thing. And 
someone like you might be able to tell the difference. <laughs> I'm a knuckle dragger, you know, I'm just <laughs> swinging fists here. I'm not going to be able to know the difference between a higher end Springfield right. and that Tisa. And seeing that that Tisa is coming in at a decent price point and it has already a bunch of upgrades, optics ready, it's got the right. extended mag well, it's got the uh, mag release, all those things at a decent price point. I mean, that's cooking it for me. It's this doesn't even come compelling. with optics ready. Yeah. You're going to pay two grand and you're not, you have to get this cut yourself? Like that's, come on. Yeah. Like you, I would think that they would do that for you at that price point. Yeah. I think, I think it's missed opportunity. Brian, tell us a little bit. Uh, shouldn't take too long. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's noteworthy. I, I should say, I mean, I am wearing um, her shirt, but uh, <laughs> tell us about this new product announcement that just came out yesterday. Uh, from uh, HK. Yep. So uh, Heckler and Coke, they just, uh, speaking of which, growing up, like my dad was a big fan of Heckler and Coke. Mm-hmm. We we always called it Heckler and Koch. Mm-hmm. And so learning that that's a different is, always messes me up. But they got a new uh, pistol out, the VP9 optics ready. And what's different is the color. It's got the new flat dark earth and uh, it's coming out of the, it's coming out. There you go. So if you've been uh, hoping to get your hands on an FDE-colored VP9 that's optics ready, here you go. This is your gun. So uh, not like, like I said, not too much to, to really say there. Uh, I'm running a VP9L now as my primary pistol. Uh, it's a fantastic gun. I like it a lot. Uh, I don't particularly have a need to have you know i i'm not like a big like oh i gotta have my own like color and stuff you know because to me uh, guns are tools and tools are just tools and so it's like if it's black it's brown it's right. gray it's green i don't I, I, does it shoot and put bullets where i want that's what i mostly care about um but i know some guys really like you know yeah you, you're like ooh fde well, hey you i know. i want to put the bullets where they need to go but i also want to look cool while i do it so <laughs> are you saying my gun's not cool no looking? you got some blasters man <laughs> i don't have that you got some science fiction stuff <laughs> new company ross martin uh actually uh a friend of mine stephanie uh tumor and her husband are behind the startup of this new firearm business. Uh, they have announced their first entry to the market called the RM1C. It's a striker-fired compact pistol. And the other thing that caught my eye with this product announcement is it says these will be made. These are being made in Dallas, Texas. Uh, so by that, I take it to mean it's not an import. Which so here's an American-made gun, striker-fired. If I'm being, you know, just straight with you, it looks like it's got some. I don't know for for a fact, but it looks like it's got some Glock-like features. The takedown, you know, mechanism uh, looks very Glockish, uh, and it's become somewhat popular in the last few years to copy uh, now expired Gen three Glock patents. Uh, that's why you're seeing, you know, like the PSA daggers and you know a lot of these Glock-like. Or you know, shadow systems. That'd be another great example. Glock-like pistols that are essentially using a lot of the Gen three type technology uh, and coming out. I don't. I'm not saying that's for sure what this is, but as I look at this, my first impression is, yeah, okay, Glock-like. All right, that's not. I mean, that's not a bad thing, right? A lot of good Glocks out there. Yeah, absolutely. We know that they they tend to work. There's here's what's interesting. This thing is American made. 
price point, $459. That's pretty good. Especially with the options that are coming with it. Yeah. And I mean, we've got here, here's, well, why don't you tell us what some of the options are that, that you uh, read there? Oh, yeah. They got a hammer forge barrel. Uh, magazine capacity is uh, sitting right around the, that Glock size, uh, 15 plus one with a flush mag or 17 plus one with the extension. Yep. Um, supposed to have a pretty good trigger, a uh, couple of different color options. And then it's also um, uh, ready for uh, optics ready, I believe, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It is optics ready. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, and also, I mean, he even has like little details that I wouldn't even expected to see on a gun at this price point. And certainly, you know, for a, you know, a basic, not to make it sound like it's basic per se, but just for a striker fired pistol, which in today's world, I mean, that's what a huge percentage of the guns on the market are. Um, it's even got a slide serrations on the top of the slide. So yeah. if you're using iron sights, you know, the idea with those sli- with those top serrations is to reduce glare uh, from the sun and things like that. And so that's, um, you know, some interesting features that you just don't always see and normally would cost quite a bit more money. American made $459. Now, uh, now one of the other features is the low bore axis is what they, you know, they state here. Uh, What is your experience with what does that matter that much to you? you? If I'm being honest and straight with you, there's some common verbiage that you know people that companies like to throw out you know well maybe explain I mean, what little bore axis is before we i will in. okay light like i'm just giving you another it, when i read here light five pound trigger pull with a clean break and short reset you could have read that on a press release of just about any other company striker fired pistol today <laughs> true or not that's like it, that's just be light five pound trigger with clean break and short reset yeah, what is that, <laughs> that, that i mean i that may be exactly what it is. I'm just saying that that that's so common now uh, that I don't I don't even know what it means. Like it's like okay, until I put my hands on it and actually press that trigger, uh, it, it means nothing. In other words, so um, but I mean, what it is is a striker fired gun, and so it, and I suspect is very Glock like in nature and in design, and so the trigger probably feels like a Glock trigger, and that's not a bad thing. Okay, so. Um, the other thing is you asked about specifically the, uh, bore axis, bore axis. So bore axis height is height of the bore over, let's say over top of the hand. Okay. Now your primary interface point between you and your gun, as far as bore axis is concerned, is going to be where your hand meets the beaver tail of the pistol. Okay. Right. And so measuring that height from there to the bore, the center line of the bore, which is where all the force is generated from the firing of a gun, right? Right. There's that's your bore height that's your bore axis height. Um the the physics suggest that the lower a bore axis is, the less leverage that is going to have over you as right. the shooter, over your hand. Okay. But here's the thing. Um, I don't get too beat up or caught up in, you know, about the whole like bore axis debate and like, oh, you know, like for instance, a common thing is that, well, a P320 has got such a high bore axis, you know, I've been shooting P320s for a lot of years now. Of course, now I'm shooting VP9s. Uh, and actually v- people say the same thing about VP9s. They did about 320. That's got a kind of a high bore axis. Bore axis goes both ways as far as the the influence that it has 
over the over you and the gun. Mm-hmm. So the idea is you have, you know, if you have a high bore access, then in theory, gun cycles, it's going to cause the muzzle to rise higher during recoil. If that's true though, guess what also happens? The muzzle or the slide's got to go back forward and it will have a greater influence of bringing the gun back down as the slide closes, which it does on its own. It, it, it goes both ways, guys. That force goes bang, bang. Now, you don't get all of the same amount of force that goes back forward, but it does bring the gun brings itself back down to the target much of the way on its own. Okay. Higher bore axis, yeah, it might. It might. I'm not going to say it doesn't. I do think that it's somewhat dependent on a number of other factors, uh, design-wise and physics-wise. But let's say if it does raise the muzzle a little bit higher than a gun with a lower bore axis, it's it kind of cancels it out a, to a large degree because it's also going to bring it. It's got more uh, uh, leverage to bring it back down as well. Okay, and that's been my experience. Um, and then the other thing is I'll send people fake pictures of me, you know, running a 320 and being like, uh, looks pretty flat, right? Uh, yeah. How do you do that? Uh, it's not that hard. Like the gun, uh, the gun shoots great. Bore access isn't everything. Here's what's actually more important. What's more important is that a gun is predictable and consistent in its return back to zero, meaning starting point, end point. The more consistent that is, that is what's most important. How high the muzzle actually raises isn't as important. I'm not saying it isn't important. I'm just saying it's not nearly as important as how consistent the gun returns. Because in theory, like let's say I take, I have two guns. One raises 10 degrees during recoil. One raises, let's say 20 degrees during recoil. If both guns fire and return back to zero consistently, and they do so in about the same amount of time, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter how much that that muzzle flips, uh, because those guns are going to cycle and return back to zero in less time than what you can actually run the trigger. Right. So it's negligible essentially. So here's my question for it's you: Absolutely negligible. You've got two two exact s- pistol systems. One has a low bore axis. The other one's regular. Do you feel like the juice is worth the squeeze? I bore access is not a part of my decision making with respect to what gun to buy or gotcha. use. Okay. So it is not a factor. Negligible then. Yep. Okay. What is a factor is a bunch of other things. And one of those is how consistently does this gun return back to zero after I fire a shot? Mm-hmm. And particularly through a string of shots. Because I want to see bop, 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 bop. I want to see it come back to zero consistently mm-hmm. in my hands. Gotcha. And that is yeah, that that's a that's a big decision uh, component, but bore access itself is not. But anyway, it, I'm again. This is not. A, I'm not. This is none. None of what we're saying is a is a knock on this gun. Um, in fact, I'm I'm quite excited for my friend Stephanie and her husband Chris uh, in this new venture of theirs. Uh, I'm curious. I'll be following along and seeing where it leads, and for them and for the for the product and the gun, and you know, I want them to succeed, obviously, because I you know they're friends and I care about them. Um, and, um, you know, it looks like it's, you know, it's got a lot of good things going for it where the rubber meets the road. That's what's going to matter yeah. as far as does it run? Does it work? Is it reliable? You know, it's American made. It has a ton of cool options. It's your perfect carry size. Um, and it's a, yeah, it's a great price. And, and yeah, I mean like that's, this is, uh, 
that's what really caught my eye. Yeah. When I saw American made, all the stuff, I'm like, okay, you know. And then I saw four four fifty nine MSRP, and I was like, wow, that's that's hard to do in today's world, especially. I mean, labor alone. Is- I was going to say they've got sweatshop prices there. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I want to hear your thoughts on this next one. Company name is Vets Tactical. Okay, they're actually based in. Castle Rock, Colorado. Really? Yeah. Hmm. So just down the road, uh-huh. like 30 minutes away. They came out with this new product they call the Cup Holster, spelled <laughs> C-U-P-O-L-S-T-E-R. Uh, it is a vehicle holster solution. So basically what it is, is, I mean, it is a, it's, it's like, it's as if you took a holster and married it with you know, a, a thing that fits in a cup holster. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, think of like your phone, you know, like some people have those little phone mounts that, that fit in a cup holster right. or in a cup holder. Uh, so imagine kind of like, you know, they kind of have that typical sort of cup like bowl, like kind of shape thing that, you know, is just going to fit in a cup holder and mount in place there. Uh, but instead of mounting a phone now to this, we're mounting essentially a holster so that, you know, I have my cup holster, my, my it's cup holster. Cup holster. C-U-P. Bolster. <laughs> it's like cup and holster married together. Yeah. Uh, your thoughts seeing this product? First thoughts were immediately, uh-oh. Um, you know, I I don't know. Uh, you might have a different opinion, but I don't like the idea of like taking my weapon off of me and storing it in my vehicle. Unless maybe I'm doing, maybe I'm, maybe I'm a trucker, I guess. And maybe I'm spending a ton of time in my vehicle. And that's something that I need. Um, I don't tend to, you, you know, you see those ones that they've got the, the, um, the heavy uh, magnets that you can clip your gun onto. And there's a lot of different versions of this type of system right. where you take your weapon out and you have it easily stored nearby, you know, to keep it safe and that kind of thing. Um, but uh, when it comes to the tactics of that, I don't really know how. I don't really see how that's really that beneficial, especially if you get pulled over by a police officer and he comes up to like talk to you at your window and here you've got this gat sitting in your cup holder while you're talking to like, as a police officer, that would make me feel a little weird. Um, So I I tend that, that tends to be my thought on that. Um, It seems like it's solving a problem that I think I I feel like you should just have your weapon on you. I I carry, I tend to carry appendix. So if I'm in a vehicle at any point, as soon as I get in, I put on my seatbelt, I take my seatbelt and I make sure I tuck it back behind my holster. So if I, Oh, we're going to have to talk about that. Not behind the holster. I try to make sure that it's cleared and out of the way so that if I got a good draw. Yeah. You, you want that. Uh, you want that that seatbelt low and across the hips, exactly in front, so it doesn't get caught on the uh, seatbelt as you're trying to escape well, the vehicle. Or you, you're going to have bigger problems with the problem with putting it behind the gun in the holster is it won't actually ride low enough like it's supposed to, and you you'll end up with it with abdominal injuries. Um, I'm sorry, say that one more time. The problem with having the belt behind the the gun indoor holster is that that will more likely produce abdominal issue, injuries as opposed to low and across the hips in front of it. Oh, you. Oh, I see it about the the seat belt uh, positioning, and, and and it is about one, making sure that it's out of the way sure. too. Um, 
which that's where like some people will put it behind it, but it's been shown. And, and like, you can talk to like John Houtman over at Filster. He's done quite a bit of uh, studying on this and has produced some videos talking about this very issue. Uh, you don't want to talk, you don't want to have the belt behind. You want to have it in front and low across the hips, which is where you're supposed to wear a belt. Anyway, right. 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 right? And the key there is just to make sure the, the belt, like you, like you, I get in, belt goes on and then just make sure that belt is down here which you know here's here's my stuff right that belt's down here it's not in the way of the gun in the holster right so you get yeah. a, cool, a smooth clean draw yeah. and also you're not getting caught on your seat belt when you're trying to get out right. yes which is a pretty yes. important thing very yes in fact you if you have the belt behind the gun in the holster if you release that belt and also try to exit it you can't actually have that seat belt pull your gun out of your holster uh-huh <laughs> which should not be ideal. Um, and there, I know, I know personally people have been in some pretty s- severe car accidents that were carrying appendix, had the belt properly low across the hips in front um, that in fact saw zero injuries caused by the gun and holster mm-hmm. uh, and didn't even notice discomfort um, being in that, that accident. In fact, when I was hit from behind carrying appendix, it wasn't a huge major crash for me, but it was enough that it jarred me and my belt locked, you know, like it's supposed to in, in a crash. Um, never once felt or noticed that, you know, I had a gun there in the appendix position. So, right. But that was just low across the hips, down below, you know, kind of like basically about where my belt is, which is, you know, you look at how a holster sits. If my belt, seatbelt's down here, it's going to be out of the way of the gun yeah Does that okay. make sense? yeah absolutely i mean yeah. uh, one of the things they call vehicles is a, what a coffin you know yeah. as a, a mobile right. coffin a mobile coffin yeah, yeah you need to get out of that thing as quick as possible you know and i i don't think provided that you can't escape with using the vehicle right yeah well say for example yeah. there's not actually a shooting there's just a fire like what happened to you <laughs> not too long ago yeah. <laughs> that I was a what? big deal i was carrying <laughs> yeah so in this situation you know now i'm running away from this vehicle and yep. maybe i'm running to go fight a bad guy maybe you know somewhere else i grab my pistol and i run out to do that now i don't have a holster yep. to stow that weapon in that's a that's not good i'm it not gonna put that in my pocket very easy when crap hits the fan and stress does this, you know, it goes to the roof. It is very easy to forget things like literally forget objects during those kinds of situations. Uh-huh. Um, I will say that there's a high probability I would have lost my gun, meaning lost it to my car fire. Uh, if I didn't have it on me right. when I was getting out of my, out of that car fire. Yeah. Well, so in this example, you it, wouldn't have even, to- it wouldn't even been just thinking Having been there and lived through it, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but just I want to make the point. Like, you don't even know what that's like, per se, until you've experienced it as far as, like, where your brain goes, what you're thinking about. Like, when I realized I was in this fire that was engulfing my vehicle at a rapid rate, uh, I... I was not thinking about what was in my cup holder, what was in my center console, what was, you know, in the seat. Like I wasn't thinking about that stuff, at least at first. Right. Uh, I was thinking about getting myself out because I was about to be engulfed self-preservation. And I was able to get some belongings out of the vehicle. Um, but it, I didn't, I did not get anything out of the front porch. It was all from the back. Uh, and, and that was after I had a moment to process and go, Ooh, I, I think I've got a little bit of time here and I've got 2000 rounds of ammo. Um, 
a bunch of guns that were in cases, wasn't thinking about anything else. Uh, just like I had a Pelican case and box ammo and all this stuff in the back that I chucked out. I lost a number of very valuable items that were in the front seat of the vehicle. Um, wasn't even crossed my mind, yeah. you know, but anyway, sorry, did you have something else? Well, I think that was mo- mostly my point is that, yeah. um, you know, I'm say I need to go run to a situation. I need to take my gun with me. Say there's a car fire and I grab that pistol out of this cup holster. And now I'm standing out there in the middle of everything with just a pistol in my hand with yep. nowhere to put it. Uh, you shouldn't be putting it in your pocket. You know, yep. uh, holsters are insanely important, you yeah. know, for firearms, you know, you can't just be sitting there with a weapon, just sitting around. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, this is not a product for me. This is not something that I would purchase or use in any way, shape or form. I, I want to be clear about a couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Laura, you know who you are, is, is the rep, is the marketing rep representative for this product and for this company. And, uh, I absolutely love you, Laura. Uh, I not a fan of this product and I'm going to, I'm going to speak plainly and clearly about a couple of reasons why, which we've already touched on several things, but here's a couple, couple of things I w- that I want to add in addition to that. Number one products like this, the reason why we are not fans of vehicle holster solutions, which this is not the, you know, th- this is, this is a solution that has come to us because people do this kind of thing. And I recognize that. But whenever we see or come across this, we've been consistent about this on the podcast. Matthew and I have talked about it. You you and I are, I'm sure, going to talk about it. You just touched on it a minute ago. Uh, but we have talked, and, and I've, I'm sure Jacob and I have even covered this on the podcast before. I know this has come up multiple times, talking about like, you know, the, the magnet mount solutions, um, actual holster type mounting solutions, things like that. We have talked about those as being problematic for a number of the reasons that you just mentioned, but also here's a couple other things. Um, one of the things that this encourages is extra administrative handling of firearms and extra admin- unnecessary un- administrative handling of firearms uh, just increases the, the potential of making a mistake at some point and having a neg- negligent discharge. Mm-hmm. Meaning, and even in the marketing video, I, I watched it of this product, a uh, gentleman gets in his pickup truck, he's carrying on his hip. And so what does he do? He gets in, pulls a gun out of the holster, sticks it in his cup holster. Okay. And then I presume when he's done, you know, getting to wherever he's going out of the cup holster, back into the holster, uh-huh. chances are while seated. And that is always a higher risk activity than doing it when standing. And so you're encouraging this admin- this extra unnecessary administrative handling. I like you prefer to have a gun on my person for a variety of reasons. There are safety reasons. There are tactical reasons. Um, even like one of the reasons people like to talk about having a gun mounted in their vehicle is speed. It's faster. Guess what? <laughs> I can deploy this pretty much as fast as what you can deploy that with practice. Yeah. 100%. Okay. Uh, and there are some other challenges. This talks about in some of the product literature that the trigger guard is protected. I didn't always see that as being consistently the case from product image to product image. Like even there's one right here uh, showing a Glock in the in the cup holster, and I'm seeing exposed triggers. So um, that makes me a little bit kind of yeah. Um, I you know, it's a safety thing. Um, other thoughts. You talked about the issue of dealing with law enforcement that stops you immediately. This changes the 
the the uh, not necessarily the outcome, although it could, but it definitely immediately changes the feel of that traffic. Yeah, the interaction stop different. interaction one hundred percent. I mean, you might have cops that are totally cool and like, oh, okay, you know, like, uh, hey, that's that's a cool product, you know. But chances are, a lot of them be a little bit weirded out by that and and a little bit more on edge than they otherwise would. Absolutely, and I, I, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, that's another thing too. This might, and they, they do acknowledge that they say, Hey, check your local and state laws before you purchase and use this product that, but that is a valid concern. Not a lot of people maybe know what exactly their laws are. Uh, they might unknowingly get in trouble, uh, with the law by using a product like this. That, that certainly could be the case. Here's another big, big, big problem I see with this, Brian. And that is what if another person sees your gun in that cup holster all it takes is for you drive typically a car or a smaller SUV and you, you have some kind of road rage type incident on the road with a pickup truck. They can see right through your window into your car right. and see that. Here's the problem. Here's, here's what could happen. Absolutely, 100% I know this could happen and likely will at some point. That other person sees, not that you have the gun in your hand, but they just see that you have a gun. Call 911. Hey, He's got a gun. I'm in this road rage incident, and this other guy's got a gun. Hmm. That does not go well for you as the other party in that in that incident, mm-hmm. okay? So you could be falsely reported on, even if you didn't touch or use or grab or, or brandish this gun uh, towards that other driver. But just the fact that they see it, they may, they may, the way they verbalize that report, or they may even simply lie about what they tell dispatcher uh, could not, could go against you. It could not, it could be not in your favor is what I'm trying to say. So that could be problematic. We talked about the issue of, potentially forgetting it when we have to extricate the vehicle from the vehicle quickly. Uh, but another issue is that, Hey, it's not on you. And you might just simply forget through the course mm-hmm. of your normal day to day, in and out of the vehicle, go to the store, etc., And now it's sitting there in plain view in the middle of the vehicle. It's, it, it could be a potential uh, theft, uh, you know, issue. One as of well. the most popular places, the most the common reasons for breaking and entering into a vehicle is to search for firearms because you 100%. find weapons in them so often. 100%. You got a bubba walking by, looks in your window, and sees you got a pistol in your cup holder. Yeah. I mean, that's an easy smash and grab right there. Yeah, I've got other thoughts, but we don't have even time to. We could we could do an episode about the concept of vehicle holsters. Mm. Uh, and, and really break this down uh, fully, uh, but we need to keep. We're you know over well over an hour now into this episode, and we still have some things that we we really ought to cover. But uh, that's the nature of you know having all these uh, these these stories like we do today, especially stuff leading up to Shot Show. I apologize to my friend Laura and to uh, a veteran-owned company based in my home, my now home state of Colorado, just down the road from me. I, I love seeing veteran-owned uh, businesses. I Same. love seeing innovation. I definitely think this is innovative because I know there are people that get in their vehicle and just stick their gun in their literal cup holder, and that. Definitely, like this is definitely better than that, but we still consider this to be a, a non-winner as far as products go uh, for a number of reasons, which I think we've we've hit some of the high points on. And so for that, I'm sorry, I gotta I gotta kind of give a thumbs down um, to this particular product, uh, but uh, and so hopefully it doesn't you know hurt feelings too bad uh, 
especially with my friend. <laughs> but, uh, you know, some of the things we see sometimes in the industry and people come up with genuinely innovative and, and, and good seeming ideas. But we've been doing this for a minute and we've seen a lot of things as we've done the podcast and we've co- as we've covered news stories, as, we, as we've covered justified save incidents, as we've covered legal problems, as we've interviewed people from a variety of backgrounds. And all of that, experience leads us to a position of not endorsing any type of vehicle holster solution better than the magnet for sure i would say you know more stable there's that covers the trigger guard kind of thing yeah you don't want that just a magnet in your truck yeah all right um let me i'm gonna i'm gonna take the, i know i've been talking for uh, a good bit here i'm gonna try to get through this next thing as quickly and concisely as possible. We're pretty high. <laughs> <laughs> the title of this episode, as you probably noticed, is The Great Translucent AR Magazine War. <laughs> so a couple days ago, Magpul announced a new translucent magazine they call the T-Mag. Uh translucent mag uh it's it's basically a similar design and shape and all that it has a lot of the same feet type of features uh as the as their famous and very popular and very useful and reliable p mags i've been a user of p mags pretty much the whole time i've owned an ar which goes back a, a, a quite a while now uh more well over a decade and uh, i've had great success with with magpul p mags in my in my rifles in my ars in fact, that's pretty much the only magazine I use, period. I have a few GI mags. I have a few other designs, but, GI but what I grab, what I go to is a P mag, especially when stuff, you know, needs to count. And I know, and I need to know that it works. Uh, I've got the, I got Gen 2s and, and, and Gen 3s as well. They've now come out with this translucent one, which they've been working on for more than a decade. Now, why is it taking that long? Well, the challenge, and, and this is true with, translucent polymers and plastics anyway uh to create different styles of plastics uh clear plastics opaque plastics different colors even of plastics just just changing color of a a polymer can can absolutely change its uh structural integrity and 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 all a whole bunch of things i mean we deal with that with the product that we sell and and own which is barrel block uh that that has been a challenge with manufacturing barrel blocks is you know different calibers have different colors so for for quick identification different colors can very easily change the care some of the characteristics melting points and curing temperatures and, and and shrinkage rates and all kinds of things just by changing color so point is is magpul was not going to come out with a translucent mag unless they could do it right unless it met all the usual standards of excellence that they expect, such as what their PMAGs have. And so it took a while to be able to do that and for them to be happy enough with it to release it now as a product. And so now you have the translucent 30 round has all the third generation characteristics of PMAGs, but it's translucent. It's actually kind of an olive drab color ish, um, but it's translucent. So you can see all the way through the mag. You can see exactly how many rounds you have left. Uh, it's got a lot of other cool features and it's durable. They said it, I mean, it's drop tested, dust tested, passes all the same tests that any of the other PMAG products pass, passes the strict department of defense test operation procedure for full weapon drops. Those are things that are important. If you want to know and have faith in this product working, 
Okay, so kudos to Magpul on the release of this new product. I'll add as a side note, even though it's not the focus of this particular article, uh, that they are also announcing the release of their first metal-bodied magazine, which is called the A-Mag, and the first one available is for the P320 pistols. Uh, I think that's a good thing because one of the downsides of some of those pistols, including the P320s from Sig Sauer, is people know they are kind of expensive magazines. I I didn't see what the MSRP of these new A-Mags are from Magpul, but I presume they're a bit more affordably priced than what you buy directly from sig i'll see if that's actually true i think that probably is the case um and and so yeah that's i mean kudos to magpul on continuing to innovate translucent magazine why gotta ask the question why help you to see I mean, what your you, round count you, is you, you see a benefit to a small benefit yeah i mean you yeah. get a you check for your round count you don't yeah. have to drop your mag and see what you've got in there you know yeah. if you're in the middle of the fight yep um i might want to just top off anyway if i've got the opportunity i'm not sure. gonna like uh that should be enough yeah. so if i get the opportunity in the middle of a gunfight then i'm going to reload and top up yep. um, but a quick glance might be beneficial yeah I think one benefit that that I saw that maybe it hasn't been touched on as much by a few people that I've seen talking about this is the ability to quickly recognize the type of rounds you have in the magazine. Uh, and what I mean by that is, well, 300 blackout, 556. Mm. Use the same magazine, mm-hmm. right? And a big problem people have is putting 300, round, 300 blackout rounds and something meant to go into a 556. That's not a problem I have. And then blowing up their gun. Well, see, I have dedicated mags that are labeled on all sides 300 blackout, right. you know. So I know I I grab that mag, that's 300 blackout, and then I'm super careful about, you know, never putting 300 mixing those rounds, mixing the ammo, not mixing the mags. Like I have 300 blackout mags, 300 blackout ammo goes in those mags. I have 556 five, ammo that goes in 556 five, only mags. Um, if you were to make a mistake though, I, I, you know, particularly if you pay attention to such things, which shouldn't be that hard in, in my opinion, because I do, but maybe that's not true of everybody. But I think at a glance, I would very quickly be like, whoa, those are not five, five, six rounds. Huh. Mostly because you, you see, you know, three and a blackout, how, you, know, you see a lot more bullet than you do in the case of five, like in a five, five, six, you see mostly brass, uh-huh. brass and a little bullet at the tip. Five, three and a blackout, you see a good chunk of bullet and then a lot less brass, you know? So to me, it's visually pretty obvious and striking. I think that could be maybe not like the biggest benefit of this, but I think it is a potential benefit, Mm -hmm. particularly for the discerning user. And maybe, maybe helps prevent some gun kabooms, you know, blowing up of guns um, by uh, making mistakes like that. So I don't know. But other than that, what, what, what other benefits might we, might we have? I, I really think the big the big thing here is just even while you probably are holding the rifle, you can probably glance down and and get a kind of an idea of about where you're at. Uh-huh. Whereas with some of the other, like the windowed P mags, you kind of have to you know look at it from the side. Yeah, now, that, that might be a thing where I'd have to run that a number of times because I've never been in the situation where I've needed to know that. Or, I've, or where that might have sure. been useful for me to know that, you know, like, totally it, valid point. Yeah. So if I'm, if I've fired a couple of rounds and all of a sudden, like I find myself in a position to like, look down, I probably have enough time for me to just swap mags out and top up. Very valid point. I will say there's been times when I used to shoot three gun, uh, where I think this would have been beneficial. Huh. 
Yeah. I suppose three gun might be. Uh, and, and, and I think it can also apply in a tactical environment, potentially. I can't speak to all those circumstances. And I think it's probably also a personal uh, preference sort of sure. thing, too. Yeah, it looks cool. Now, here's what's interesting is there are two other companies in the last day that have now been like, hey, what about us? Uh, Mission First Tactical introduced yesterday their new MFT Translucent EXD magazine. Uh-huh. And what's interesting there is they have five different colors. They have a clear, a smoke, a red, a blue, and a yellow. If I'm You're right. Correct. I'm okay. looking at it right now. Yellow is supposed to be for um, for uh, uh, like blanks. Red and blue is supposed to be for uh, like sim, sim munitions. And then uh, clear and smoke for personal preference of regular ammunition, I suppose. So they're like, hey, us too. And apparently theirs are being actually used by some federal law enforcement agencies. I don't know which ones. Don't know how long those have been tested. They didn't mention any specifics as to tests that these magazines have passed. It all comes down to with respect to magazines. Number one, they got to be reliable. Number two, they can't break easily. Uh, you know, you got to be able to drop them, you know, bang them, smash them, run over them sometimes, you know, and, and still have them function, not have feed lips break, not have feed lips stretch. It's actually one of the big benefits of a, of a PMAG is it doesn't stretch like the old aluminum GI mags feed lips did where they kind of over time start, start spreading out a little yeah, bit. Yeah. So, so uh, I just thought it was interesting timing that Magpul, after basically like 10 to 12 years of development on this translucent T-Mag, within a day, Mission First Tactical is like, ooh, us too. I'm like, that's coincidental. And then Lancer Systems posted just last, I think it was last night, I saw it, a little Instagram post. And it was just a picture of, Lancer's been making translucent mags for years, like a decade. Uh, and they're not a bad magazine. And I definitely know some people that prefer them even over, say, PMAGs, although that's that's not me. I've seen not egregious problems, but I've seen a few reliability issues here and there with, with Lancer mags, personally speaking. Not ones I had, but but some that some friends of mine have used. The one thing that Lancers are known for is you drop them, they have a tendency to suddenly vomit rounds out of them. It's <laughs> kind of funny. When they hit the ground. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so... Not that that's totally unheard of, but that is something that's just like known about those translucent Lancer mags uh, that they just tend to do that. They hit the they hit the deck and they, you know, suddenly spew all the rounds. So apparently Lancer is implying that the the Instagram post was of it was a video of one of their trans, presumably a new version of their translucent mags hitting the ground and not losing all of its rounds. And people were definitely picking up on that in the comments on that post. So three of these companies in about a 24 to 36 hour period, suddenly making waves about translucent magazines. That's why it's now known as the great translucent AR magazine war. It's going we'll on. see who wins. We'll see who wins. Magpul's, Magpul's got a pretty good edge. They got a great reputation. Their stuff works. They really care about their products and how they come out with it. This is why it's taking them so long to do it. They are a leading in the industry of yeah. magazines, and it's taking them this long to get to it it's because it's hard to do. Now, just because of time, we're just going to cover one last story. There is one extra one here I'll preview for you folks. Uh, actually, two more. Excuse me. Two more stories. Democratic AGs call for crackdown on civilian sale of popular AR-15 ammunition. Look for that one in the show notes. You'll want to you know, get up to speed with what's going on there. A coalition of 20 Democratic attorneys general from a bunch of different states all trying to you know, crack down on civilians being able to buy yeah. 
556 ammunition not cool uh if they can't control the guns they'll try to control the ammo they'll try to control you know all sorts of things the other story that i'll preview that you'll need to just go check out on your own if you, it's not so much even a news story the link is really to a uh an instagram post from the boomstick babe alicia garcia who's local to us here a friend of mine and known her for a few years now took her to a shooting match uh, got her introduced to some uspsa she's a great gal she's especially great because she's working so hard on the on the second amendment fight uh she's actually personally involved i mentioned this a few weeks ago in one of the lawsuits uh, here in Colorado, uh, one of the laws that was passed last year, the, the background check requirement now, you, if you want to buy a gun in Colorado, you got to wait three days to pick it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she's 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 one of the plaintiffs on that lawsuit. She posted up on her Instagram last, uh, I think it was last Thursday or Friday, uh, about 10 potential anti-gun bills. Uh, or Actually, she posted about one specific bill. It had a number of these provisions in there. Uh, uh, Rocky Mountain gun owners also sh- uh, put put up or list these ten potential bills that they want to introduce here in Colorado. Uh, so, and this is just Colorado, by the way. New Mexico doing some similar things. Uh, Illinois continuing to try to do some things, even while they're fighting some some things in the courts from stuff they passed last year. So, several states. Colorado is just one of those. It certainly hits us right here at home. You want to go check out those posts and those stories and see what's going on and get involved in the fight for sure. And probably talk about some of this some more in the future, as I'm, I'm sure we will be with respect to how it impacts us here in our state of Colorado. The last story we'll cover, though, today, though, is is how a judge ruled on a ban on firearms in post offices as being unconstitutional in this landmark case. Now, this is a district uh, court ruling. Uh, so there's still, you know, potential for appeals here, but this is a huge, huge, huge win for the second amendment. And, uh, Ryan, why don't you tell us about some of their details of this case? Yeah. So, um, this one started off, um, with a Mr. Ayala who was caught carrying a weapon in, um, the post office that he worked at. Um, he was carrying it for self-defense, um, but he was caught carrying it and um, officers approached him and he was a bit of a knucklehead and uh, he wound up uh, resisting. And uh, I don't think that helped his case at all. Um, but uh, the judge came back and said that um, he was going, um, um, he was going, he was indicted after allegedly bringing the weapon to the Postal Service property in 2012 and evading federal agents. Uh, and the separate charge of resisting the arrest was not or was yeah. not dismissed. It wasn't. It wasn't a part of this. Uh, he's th- he had his own problems in a separate criminal case because of what occurred and and what was appealed and what was um, overturned. And in, in this case, was essentially. Uh, his charges, his conviction on possessing a firearm on protected property, meaning federal property being the the postal service. Right. Yeah. They, I mean, the fact that he resisted arrest, that's, I mean, that's on him, right? He were purely looking at the constitutionality of his ability to, to, or to not to carry gun on postal office property. I think it's kind of a lesson to all of us. I mean, I know quite a few people who carry things that they aren't supposed to into places they're not allowed to. 
Now, I, I think this kind of like highlights, this is back in 2012 that this happened. Mm-hmm. So he has been fighting this fight for a good piece. This has mm-hmm. been a big part of his life, I am assuming, for a long time. Um, so you should take that into account. You know, if you're planning to to do this kind of thing, you know, you, you kind of have to understand the the consequences that come yeah. with it and understand those. Yeah. The argument for their for this case is that there's no historical precedent, meaning going back to the founding of this country in particular, uh, no historical precedent that suggests that restriction on carrying of a gun on postal uh, property, post office property is uh, allowed, that restricting that's allowed. And uh, the the district judge in this case, uh, Catherine Mizell, uh, agreed with that argument that uh, uh, that she believed that uh, Bruin, in particular, last year's landmark Supreme Court case, uh, su- supports this man's case. In this case, you know that's what uh, led to him bringing this case forward. Was hey, under Bruin, you need to be able to demonstrate a historical precedent that that means that the post office, the federal government, can restrict my ability to carry on on post office property. It's pretty interesting. Um, there's actually a local story from a number of years ago here where a man lost a federal case uh, because he was trying to uh, make a well. His, in his case, he didn't have the Bruin decision to rely upon, but in his case, what happened was he lived in a rural community. He doesn't have uh, delivery of, of mail to his home address. He has to go to the post office to pick it up from his PO box. And his argument was like, "Look, I have no option but to pick up." Like I have to go into the post office to pick up my my mail, and I have a right to personal defense. um, That you know, you can't expect me to disarm myself. I got to drive there. I got to get out of my pickup. uh, I got to walk into the post office to get my mail. I want to be protected. He lost his case. It'd be interesting to see if uh, you know that if he was able to retake that up. I don't know. He didn't want to leave his pistol in the cup holster (laughs) when he went into the post office. So anyway, again, this is a district court ruling. That means it could still be appealed up to the circuit court level or even beyond. I suspect that there will be some appeals from the government, at least in this case. Uh, we'll, we'll try to keep you posted on that. But this is still a huge ruling and a big Second Amendment win because now, for the first time that I can recall, we have a federal judge that's saying, and, and especially because of something like the Bruin ruling saying, yeah, um, dude's got a point here. Uh, dude can carry gun on post office property. Yeah. So uh, that doesn't mean any of you should rush out and be doing that. Okay. Just to be clear. <laughs> and and uh, if anything, this would, as of right now, only apply either. I'd have to dig a little bit deeper on this, either specifically to this man's case um, or the it, the big pr- probably the broadest that this would apply would be the district that it's out of, which is the uh, uh, just so I could tell some of y'all um, U.S. U.S. District Court, Middle District of Florida, Tampa Division, so the Tampa, Florida area. So uh, this ruling as of right now may apply for those of you in the Middle District of Florida but probably not anywhere else. So don't be rushing out and think and going, Hey, I can carry on the post office property. So don't do anything stupid. In other words, we got to let this play out. That's right. So 
I realize I didn't do our sponsorship read uh, for Mountain Man Medical mid mid roll here. Uh, but before we go, Brian, anything else you want to throw out there about Mountain Man Medical, mountainmanmedical.com, products, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, yeah, well, we. We have a lot of custom trauma kits, so make sure that you go and hit us up. Uh, you can call me, hit me up, um, and uh, I can help you design up some custom trauma kits. Uh, we're working with a ton of ranges right now, so if you own a range or you know somebody who owns a range, um, we are supplying them with their trauma kits and also potentially some training. Um, we, I can fly out and set you up with some training on how to use everything and bring out some trauma kits and get you set up uh, for your range and your range masters to carry some trauma kits in case something weird happens. So um, if you're interested in that, make sure you head over to mountmanmedical.com and check us out. I also have some YouTube videos talking about uh, different types of trauma kits. So make sure you go and follow us on all the socials and uh, got some good information out there for you. Right on dude. Doc McLaughlin. That's our guy. It's me. All things mountain man medical. Uh, guys, again, SHOT Show next week. Uh, we'll be there representing in our booth, number 41010, um, com's interest, Mountain Man Medical products will be represented there, KSG Armory holsters, uh, Range Tech Shot Timers, Barrel Block, EDC Belt Company. Uh, uh, also have Gunfighter Gun Oil products on display there. I feel like I'm missing something possibly somewhere. Oh, uh, uh, Ready Up Gear, which yep. are our brand for a lot of like our bags, cases, dummy ammo, that kind of stuff. Uh, so, guys, come check us out if you can. We hope to see you there. And if you can't, be looking for c- coverage from SHOT Show. Do intend to be filming some some videos and some interviews and some different things during the week, showcasing some new products, talking to some cool people, um, all that. Might even try to record a couple ep- of episodes of the podcast or interviews for you guys to listen to post-show as well. We'll see what we can get done. It's always a busy week. It's a hectic week. Usually we have this many you know things we plan to do and we get about you know that many done because that's just the nature of it. <laughs> that's hopping. But uh, we look forward to it. And yeah, any, anything else you want to throw out there? No, come out, see us. I'll love to talk to you. Just stop by the booth and say hi. That's that's all I'm interested in. Awesome. That's it. That's a wrap. I, this is a longer episode than is typical. Uh, so apologies for that. If it uh, ran a bit longer than you were anticipating, couldn't maybe get it all listened to in your commute in one day. But uh, as you can see, lots of lots of interesting news, new products, all kinds of things going on. And there'll be more next time. So until next time, a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. A reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. Concealed Carry, Inc., its brands and properties, and the Concealed Carry podcast is not a legal service, nor are we attorneys at law. We make our best faith effort to share Concealed Carry-related insights and information about firearm-related incidents and the laws pertaining based on our own understanding and experience. But things can be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast. Please exercise care with all things pertaining to firearm use, concealed carry, and always practice following basic firearm safety rules. More information about safety can be found at concealedcarry.com forward slash safety.